This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Now, tonight we feature two legends of the acting world. At the half hour, Orson Welles leads us on another Mary Chase in the person of Harry Lyme. But first, an actor whom I honestly think won the admiration of the acting community itself, as well as the millions of adoring fans. I'm referring to James Stewart, who mostly was referred to as Jimmy Stewart. Now, whether it was an appearance on uh, the Christmas classic It's a Wonderful Life or watching him appear as a special guest on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show to read his latest poetry, he was loved by all. And let me relate a personal anecdote here. Several years ago, when I lived and worked in St. Catharines, my late wife, Dine Island Proctor, was the artistic director for Press Theatre there. Now, one fall, she had programmed another classic show that had obvious connections to Jimmy Stewart, Harvey, the story about a man whose best friend is a puka named Harvey in the form of a six-foot-three-and-a-half-inch-tall invisible rabbit. Well, just for the fun of it, Di wrote to Jimmy Stewart telling him that she was proudly directing a show with distinguished Canadian actor Douglas Chamberlain in the lead role and promising that two seats would be held for him in the front row just in case Mr. Stewart would care to come and see the show. Well, it was all done in the expectation that, aside from a bit of clever marketing, the seats would never be used. She and the rest of the acting troupe were astonished to receive a wonderfully worded handwritten letter from Jimmy Stewart stating that, unfortunately, previous commitments prevented him from making the trip from Hollywood, but he really appreciated the kind gesture of the author of the tickets for the show, and he wished everyone a great time working on one of his favorite shows. And tonight, that Stewart charm is very much in evidence again in this episode of Six Shooter, where you'll hear Jimmy Stewart singing bringing in the sheaves as he helps to build a community church in a western town. That's dead ahead on Theater of the Mind. James Stewart as the sick shooter. The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. Gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl. Its handle, unmarked. People call them both the sick shooter. The NBC Radio Network presents James Stewart as the sick shooter. A transcribed series of radio dramas based on the life of Rip Ponson. The Texas plainsman who wandered through the Western territories, leaving behind a trail of still remembered legend.
started a Tuesday evening choir practice and quite a spell, but when Reverend Broom stopped by the Tropical Ranch where I was working and asked me if I could manage to take part in this week's rehearsal, well, I sure couldn't see how to do any harm, so I... Bringing in the sheep, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheep. Anyhow, there we are, about ten of us all gathered around. John Farley's general store it was. You see, the town of Easter Quick didn't have a regular church building yet. They held their services and social affairs in the mercantile while they went ahead trying to raise money to put up a community church. It it was during the second verse of bringing in the sheaves that things started sounding a little peculiar, sort of like the voices and the music were sort of traveling different trails. First, I thought it was me. I never have been exactly what you'd call melodious, but uh, and the other folks were beginning to have their troubles, too. And it, holy smokes, it just was getting terrible. And finally, Mrs. Peebles, she was the organist, she just threw up her hands and stopped even trying to play. I can't go on, Mrs. Room. I simply can't. No, no, Elvira. Heaven knows I've tried. I've done my best. But this organ... Just won't play anymore. Well, we'll have Mr. Farley take another look at it, Elvira. I'm sure he'll be able to get it back into shape. There's nothing Mr. Farley can do. Or anybody else. It's plain wore out. You can't expect a thing to last forever. Well, no, no, of course not. Seems to me that after all this time, something could have been done about buying a new organ. When I donated this one to the congregation, I didn't suppose I'd have to go on playing it all the rest of my life. But apparently that's what's expected. Now, now, there's no need to upset yourself, Elvira. Well, I can't help being upset. I I say I can't help it. How do you think I feel every Sunday? All those sour notes, that wheezing and whining. Folks are beginning to think that it's me. That it's my plan. Well, I've been humiliated for the last time, and I won't go through it again. But, 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 Elvira, we gotta have music for Easter services. Music? Well, you certainly don't call that music, do you? Good night, Reverend Bruce. All right, everybody. Give me your attention, please. Attention, folks. Quiet down now, please. Quiet down. It appears that matters have come to a serious crisis. It's bad enough for a town by the name of Easter Creek not to have a proper building for Easter services. But to be without an organ and an organist. Well, it's a disgrace, a positive disgrace. Now, we mustn't blame Miss Peebles. That instrument has seen its best days. There's no doubt about it. So I propose that we take immediate steps to purchase a replacement. Just one thing, Reverend Boone. Yes, sir. Where's the money coming from? Well, uh, now I've given that matter serious thought, Sheriff Appleton, and there seems to be only one possible solution to the problem. We'll just have to borrow from the building problem. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. sort of like Robin Peter to pay Paul, isn't it? No, no, not exactly, not exactly. 
Seeing as how we haven't reached our $1,000 goal anyway, well, the money's just sort of lying there. Uh, yeah, no, I don't know about that. Uh, just how much do you figure a new organ will cost, Reverend Bruce? Well, I've done some investigating in the field, Mrs. Appleton. Last month, when Elvira's foot went through the pump pedal, it seemed like the situation was coming to head. The church over to Whitefield purchased a new organ just last Christmas, and uh, they're willing to sell us their old one. Uh, it's used, of course, but it's still in excellent repair. And they're only asking ninety-five dollars. No, 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 no! I'm afraid that's a bit more than we can afford, Reverend. We must have at least ninety-five dollars in the building fund. We've been putting money aside for the last year. No, no, we ain't. We got forty-two fifty. That's the total. Up to and including three dollars sixty-five in the cake bazaar a month ago. Forty-two fifty. Yep. I just had no idea. I was. We're shy over fifty dollars from what it would take to buy the organ, and there just isn't any way we could raise it. Not between now and Easter. Now, now, now. We mustn't give up. After all, we only need um, the fifty dollars. No, fifty-two fifty. Yeah, yes, exactly. Let's see. There was just someone who could take a firm grip of the situation. A man who, Mister Ponson. Uh, yes, yes, Reverend. Uh, uh, Mr. Ponson, I know you aren't a regular member of our congregation, and and you've only been in our midst a few months. But, well, I, uh, sure would be glad to donate what I can to the cause, Reverend, but I'm afraid it'd only be a drop in the bucket. Oh, a donation wasn't exactly what I had in mind. Oh? I think perhaps you can be of more service in another fashion. Ladies and gentlemen, I propose that we appoint Britt Ponson, a committee of one to take charge of the organ raising. Well, oh, now, hold on a minute here, Reverend Broome. We all know that, that you're a man of strength and determination, Mr. Ponson. That you inspire confidence. And we trust generosity. Well, now, I, I'd sure like to oblige you folks, but what you're asking is just out of the question. That's all. You wouldn't turn us down in our hour of need. Oh, no, I'm not turning you down exactly. What I mean is, I, it just couldn't be done. Why, you've been a whole year raising forty-two fifty, and now you're talking about raising over $50 in just a few days. Well, we've been going at it the wrong way, I'm Mr. Potts. What? I'm sure your approach will be 100% more effective. My approach? Why, certainly. And just to show you how easy it'll be, we'll start things off by taking up a collection right now. Sheriff Appleton, will you pass the hat? But, uh... All right, everybody. Dig down deep. It's a wonderful thing Mr. Ponsett's doing in taking over this fundraising campaign. But, but I never said and a word. here's our chance to let him know how Reverend. much we appreciate Reverend. Well, the sheriff finished passing the hat and poured it out on the table. And Reverend Broom counted it. Two dollars and fifty cents. And yet the Reverend was real pleased, too. He said that that meant that I only had $50 to go. A nice round number. Well, not that I had any intention of taking this job of raising the money to get the new organ, you understand. I told the Reverend I couldn't do it. I told him just as plain as day that I couldn't do it. But somehow he got the idea that I had already agreed to do it. And no matter how hard I talked, he just kept... And the other folks, they... They were as bad as Reverend Broom. They I was just outnumbered. That's all it was to it. So, early the next morning, I 
I took my hat in my hand and started out. Um, must have been getting around noon when I finally came back to the sheriff's office. Oh, come in, Bet. Come in. Morning, Abner. Oh, well, how's everything going? You, you been out collecting? Yeah, yeah, I've been collecting. Well? Well, $11. That's what I got so far. Hey, $11, huh? That's remarkable, Bet. Simply remarkable. But the trouble is I've already asked everybody in town. Uh-huh. Except you, that is. Oh. Oh, well, I, I suppose I could give you a dollar, but... Don't forget, I was in on the collection at Clarefax. You ain't serious, Britt. You, you don't mean you really ask everybody else. I, as a matter of fact, there is one area I sort of skipped over. Oh? Well, those cabins over east of the creek and the ranches out that way, I I haven't visited them yet. Well, you'd just be wasting your time if you did. I would. I... Yeah, those folks wouldn't be very anxious to help out at church. Mess of thieves, cattle wrestlers, every other kind of riffraff. Oh, is that what they are? Oh. Oh, well, now, that's just the general census of opinion. And, of course, if I could know for certain that we had any actual outlaws living around Easter Creek, if I was positive, that is, well, it'd be my duty to arrest them. I see. Uh-huh. But the fact is, they ain't caused any trouble here in town, none of them. I can't go around arresting people on rumors. Well, can I, Britt? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I understand Red-Eye Kirk has a place somewhere east of town, doesn't he? That's hearsay, Rick, pure oh. and simple hearsay. Oh, I see. Why, you don't think I'd let a notorious gunfighter like Red-Eye live right here under my nose, do you? Well, it's too bad he's not in these parts. Oh? No, I was thinking I might like to pay him a little visit. Well, what on earth for? Well, as long as he's not in the neighborhood, I guess it doesn't matter, Kind of a shame, though. Oh, well, now, if you're really anxious to... Uh, what I mean is... <clears throat> but they do say there's a fellow who somewhat resembles Red Eye. He's got himself a cabin just this side of Deer Mountain. Just this side of Deer Mountain, huh? Hey, now, uh, well, wait a minute, Red. Wait, wait a minute. Uh, what in Sunday do you want to get mixed up with Red Eye Kirk for? What's he got to do with raising money for a new organ? Well, a probably won't have anything to do with it, but it's just that I don't want to leave any stones unturned, you see. Go on. It was about a half hour's ride out to the cabin Sheriff Applin told me about. Not much of a cabin, though. Just a shack at the foot of Deer Mountain with a corral off one side. Hmm. There sure were a lot of different brands on the horses in that corral. Well, I pulled up in the yard about 15 feet from the cabin door. Whoa, 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 whoa. From there, it didn't seem like there was anybody home. And then I heard the door start to creak open. The barrel of a forty-five poked in the side. The man behind it was tall and square-shouldered and thick black beard and kind of reddish eyes. Howdy. What do you want, mister? I'm looking for Red-Eye Kirk. Ain't nobody here by that name. Uh-huh. Well, maybe you'll do, then. What? My name's Ponsett, Brett Ponsett. Ponsett? Now, hold on, hold on. I'll just take it easy with that gun. Get him up. Get him up high. Oh, sure, sure. How's this? 
You alone? Yep, yep, I'm alone. You must be plumb crazy thinking you can take me single-handed. No, 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 I'm not interested in taking you, Red Eye. I told you that ain't who I am. Oh, that's right, yeah, that's right. Yes, you did. Yes, that's right. Uh, mind if I get off my horse? Well, just don't try nothing, that's all. And don't move towards your holster. Don't worry. That's close enough. Sure, 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 sure. Now, what are you doing out here, anyway? Well, the fact is, uh... You see, Mr. I, uh, Mr. Uh, what'd you say your name was? Uh, Jones. Bill Jones. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mr. Jones, I've been given the job of raising some money. What? Now, now, don't get me wrong, it wasn't my idea, but since it was for such a good cause, I just couldn't turn the folks down. Good cause? A new church organ. That's what I'm collecting for. What? Now, you see, the one that Reverend Broom's congregation has been using, it sort of gave up the ghost last night, and what with Easter coming on, I... Well, it, Are you it, joshing me, mister? No. No, of course I'm not. You mean you're out here trying to raise money so you can buy a church organ? That's right. Go on. Get moving before I take a shot at you. You won't give me a hand, huh? I wouldn't give you five cents for every church organ west of the Mississippi River. Now, it, it wasn't your money I wanted. What? No, no. No, it wasn't that at all. What the devil did you come around bothering me for? Well, I was thinking that, uh, you're a pretty influential man with some of the folks here about. Well, they'll toe the mark if I tell them to. You can bet on that. Yeah, well, that's just the impression I got. So what? Well, it seemed to me that if I was to go moseying around these parts alone, some of your friends might not look too kindly on the idea of giving me donations. <laughs> they sure wouldn't. But on the other hand, if if we were to approach them together as a kind of a team, you might say. A team? That's the general idea, yeah. You? You want me to go along with you? I sure would appreciate it if you would. And, and help you raise money for a church organ? That's, that's right. <laughs> me taking up a Sunday school collection. Well, that's the doggondest notion anybody ever had. <laughs> what do the boys think? Huh? Jack Denton, Wisconsin Billy. Why, it'd be almost worth it just to see their faces. <laughs> you sure got a sense of humor, Ponson. And you know something this here crazy scheme of yours? I'm going to take you up on it. Oh, uh, you know something, Mr. Jones? Uh, you, know, you know something? I kind of thought you would. <laughs> you are listening to The Six Shooter, starring James Stewart as Britt Ponsett, the Texas plainsman whose name has become a legend throughout the great Southwest. And now, act two of the story called Crisis at Easter Creek. Well, the first place we came to was a farmhouse about a quarter of a mile south of Red Eye's cabin. At least it had been a farmhouse once. 
And there sure wasn't any crops growing in the vicinity now. The porch sagged off at a slant, and the windows were stuffed full of papers and rags. Even the front door looked like it was about to slide off its hinges. The place really looked deserted, but Red Eye gave me the nod, and we pulled up and dismounted. Red Eye, he had a great big grin as wide as a full moon spread all over his face. Been there ever since we started off. Hey, Danton! Get out here, Danton! It's me, Red Eye! Uh, well, I'm, I mean, uh, <laughs> well, I guess you know who I was anyway, didn't you? Well, I, I, I had a pretty good idea. Howdy, Red Eye. What can I do for you? Danton! This is Britt Ponson. Ponson! Howdy, Dan. Now, don't you worry, Red Eye. Even if he did get the draw on you, he ain't turning you over to no sheriff. Oh, put your gun away, Denton. Huh? Use your eyes. Ponson ain't covered me, is he? Then, what are you doing riding along with him? Well, we got us a little project. You explain it to us, Ponson. Well, the fact is, we're collecting money to buy a new organ for Reverend Broom. What? That's right, Jack. Oh. Sounds to me like you said money for a new organ. I must be getting law close. I sure ain't going to argue that with you, Denton. Well, come on. Come on, fork over. You you mean you're serious, Red Eye? Of course I'm serious. And he must be holding a gun on you. I ain't got all day, Denton. How much we need, Britt? Well, let's see. Uh, Twelve and fifty. Uh, Thirty-eight dollars. Well, you heard him. Denton. Oh, 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 sure, sure, Red Eye, sure. Uh, now, uh, just let me look in my purse here. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, two twenty-dollar gold pieces. How's that? Well, I, I didn't mean that you had to contribute the whole thing. Uh, <clears throat> uh, just just keep the change. Just keep the change. Oh, well, thanks a lot. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure entirely. Well, was there anything else, Red Eye? Uh, no, no, I guess that'll do it for now. Well, let's go, Ponson. Yeah, sure. Easy, boy. Easy. I'm glad you boys stopped by. Anytime I can... Well, you know where to find me. <laughs> uh, we'll stop at Mike Morgan's place next. That's just down the road. Well, that's mighty considerate of you, Red Eye, but uh, we, we don't need to make another stop. What? Well, what are you talking about? Well, $38, that's all we needed, you see. Oh. See, the, the organ's all paid for. Now. Well, uh, uh, there must be something else the Reverend needs money for, ain't it? Oh, I suppose. Oh, doggone it, Ponson. I'm enjoying myself. Besides, it wouldn't be fair to the rest of the boys if Denton was the only one who got a chance to do a little contributing to charity. At least we can do is stop at Mike Morgan's. Since how we're so close. I said, well, whatever you say. Whatever you say, Red Eye. <laughs> made about eight more stops before evening, and I must say that all of Red Eye's friends are mighty generous. I, I even had to turn down the offer of a couple of cows for the cause, seeing as how there was some doubt as to the legal owner of the stock in question, but the gold and the silver and the paper money, well, there just wasn't any way of telling how that was come by, at least uh, wasn't any way I could think of. So by sundown, I was carrying quite a load of cash. And we were riding away from Slick Wilson's place when Red Eye gave a little sigh and looked at me sort of disappointed. Well, guess I better head back home now. Sure, Red Eye. Sure. (laughs) 
What's the matter? I was just thinking about how Mike Morgan tripped over his shotgun when I oh. told him what it was we wanted. Oh, and then yeah. they blowed himself right over the bar. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was kind of a close call, wasn't it? Oh, gone it. I don't see why Wisconsin Billy wasn't at home. Well, he'd have been fit to be tied. Well, we did all right without him. You know. He's in say, 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 it's a Brit. Oh, why don't you come back tomorrow, huh? Oh, no. He'll probably be around there. Oh, no, no. No, thanks, Red. I, I, I got a, well, I got a whole, whole lot more than I ever expected. Huh? And I sure do appreciate your assistance. Oh, pleasure's all mine. <laughs> well, good luck. Same come to on. you. Same to you, Red Eye. <laughs> It was about an hour's ride back to town, but before I'd gone more than halfway, I I got the feeling there was somebody following me. I sure didn't like it either. Not with all this money I had in the saddlebag. No, I gave Scar a little touch of the spur. Come on, boy. Come on. Come on. Let's go. When I heard the other horse pounding up the trail after me, I said, let's go, boy. Come on. Come on. Let's go. His first shot was over my head. There wasn't any point in trying to outrun him. Scar being as tired as he was, so I slid out of the saddle and I rolled over behind a rock. It was still coming, so I eased my gun out of the holster and inched up to get a look at him. He was a big fella, holding his revolver loose in his hand like he didn't figure on using it. Well, I didn't figure on letting him rob me either. I waited until he was about even with the rock where I was hiding. Then I stood up. Drop it! Drop it! Okay, okay, take it easy, Ponson. Why, you know who I am, huh? Red Eye told me you was heading this way. I've been trying to catch up with you for the last 15 minutes. You... You mean Red Eye sent you after me? I'll say he did. Well, I'll be darned. I thought I had him figured different. Now, I suppose he told you about the money, too. Sure, yeah. sure. Here's mine. Hmm? My share. Catch. What? Your, your share? Plymouth Church organ. Name's Wisconsin Billy. I was out when you come by to collect this afternoon. Oh. Oh. Then I wanted to make certain you got my donation. Oh. Oh, I see. Now, do you mind handing me my gun? You're you guy? No, not a bit. Here, here you are. Well, so long, Parker. Yes, yes, so long, there. I, I simply can't believe it, Mister Parker. There must be over a thousand dollars here. Just about, Reverend. Just about. Enough for the organ. Enough to build a church, too. Yeah? <laughs> well, uh, Mr. Ponsett. Yeah? Now, you mustn't think me ungrateful, but I'm afraid we can't accept this money. What? Well, you see, Sheriff Appleton told me where you got it. He did, huh? Now, mind you, I don't have any objections myself. I think when help is offered, it should be accepted, irregardless of the source. But uh, some of my people, they aren't quite so broad-minded. And the idea of permitting Red Eye Kirk and those other outlaws to donate to our fund, well... Now, we... now, now, just hold on, Reverend Bro. Now, just hold on. Now, when I was talking to Sheriff Appleton, 
earlier today. He claimed that there weren't any outlaws in the vicinity of Easter Creek. Well, we don't like to admit that our town is a, a haven. Uh... Why, the, why, the sheriff said that if there were any bandits around here, it was his duty to arrest them. Of course, that would mean getting a posse together. It would probably mean a lot of shooting and killing. Well, Mr. Ponson, everybody knows it. I mean, it's common knowledge. And as for Red Eye Kirk ever having anything to do with that money I raised, well, I, you could be mistaken, Reverend. But, but you were seen riding along. Well, it, it looked like Red Eye. Didn't Sheriff Fapland ever tell you about the fellow that lives out near Deer Mountain who's supposed to be the spitting image of Red Eye Kirk? Didn't oh, you tell about Now, Mr. Ponson. No, no, even if... Some of those fellows on the other side of the creek are sort of outside the law. Now, I'm not saying they are, mind you, but even so, you know, accusing them of being criminals, it might stir up a whole lot of trouble. That's true, of course. And besides, Sheriff Applin says they're law-abiding citizens, and he's your duly elected sheriff. He sure ought to know. Hmm? Well, night, Reverend. I'll uh, see you in church. Well, I guess there was a little argument about whether or not to accept the money, but Sheriff Appleton finally convinced folks that they didn't have any right to turn him down. So by the following Sunday, Easter, the congregation had a new organ. And the service was real well attended, too. Now, I, some of the folks didn't look like regular church goers. They, but Red Eye, he, I mean, uh, Mr. Jones, he explained to me afterwards that he and his friends just wanted to make sure their contributions had been put to a good use. I don't know if they've been back since, but you never can tell, you know. Broom preached a real fine sermon that morning. NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions. It is based on a character created by Frank Burke and is written by him. Mr. Stewart may currently be seen in the Universal International picture, The Glenn Miller Story. Others in the cast were Virginia Gregg, Marvin Miller, Ted DeCorsia, Robert Griffin, and Red Eye Kirk. Special music for this program was by Basil Adlam, and the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents were fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. Well, by the way, you'll be interested in knowing that the sick shooter has been chosen for broadcast to our men overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. This is John Wall speaking. Stay tuned for Orson Welles in the Lives of Harry Lyme, next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for The Lives of Harry Lyme, starring Orson Welles.
Presenting Orson Welles as the third man. The Lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character originally created in the motion picture The Third Man with zither music by Anton Karras. That was the shot that killed Harry Lyme. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. As those of you know who saw the movie The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives. And I can recount all of them. How do I know? It's very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. Don't get me wrong, I love Budapest. From Budapest come goulashes and shardashes. Shardashes being something you dance and goulash being something you eat if you go for all that paprika. Me, I love it. So, when I got that telegram, I took the first train to Hungary. Maybe I'd better tell you about the telegram first. Dear Mr. Lyme, it said, my bank is going to be robbed and I need your help. It was signed Fekety, evidently a man's name, nobody I knew. I knew all about bank robberies, however, and I was dying to help. Besides, as I say, I love paprika. So I started packing right away. Orson Welles as Harry Lyme, the third man, in today's story, Too Many Crooks. Before calling out the bank, I stopped at a cute little flower shop I happened to notice across the way. Uh, good morning. Uh, would you give me something for my buttonhole? Why, Lily. Lily, what are you doing here? We have some very pretty pink gardenias. Oh, come on, Lily. Don't tell me you don't remember me. And how are all the Corellis? The who? Huh? Don't give me that, Lily. My name is Lulu. Well, it used to be Lily, and you used to be a blonde. And the Corellis, as you know perfectly well, because you used to work for them, are the best bank robbers in Central Europe. Well, what about it, honey? Here are your gardenias, Harry. Now get out of here. Okay, honey, okay. No need to get in a hassle. I'm telling you, Harry, get out. I never was one to argue, so I took my gardenias across the street and the bank. Mr. Fekety will see Mr. Harry Lyme. You can go in now, Mr. Lyme. Oh, thank you. Mr. Fekety will see you. Yes, that's what I gathered. Uh, this way, please. And thank you. Oh, Mr. Lyme, uh, will you please extinguish your cigarette? Mr. Fekety does not approve of smoking. Thanks. I'll bear that in mind. Mr. Lyme. Come in. Come in and shut the door. There's a bait. Do you mind if I sit down, Mr. Fekety, or is there a rule against that? Sit down. Sit down. You're a very impertinent young man, but I don't mind that. I am an impertinent old man. We ought to get along together very nicely. What's your proposition, Mr. Fekety? Yeah. 
What do you mean? That's what I said. What's your proposition? Uh, listen to me, Lime. I don't make propositions. I consider them. Have it your own way, Fegarty. I'm a big boy now, and I'm not so easily impressed. Uh, what do you mean, impressed? All this big desk, double secretary, Mr. Fegarty will see you now. Mr. Fegarty doesn't approve of smoking, busy executive hoopla. I may go down very well with the bumpkins who give you their money to invest. It doesn't mean a thing to me. You sent for me, didn't you? I crossed three national borders to get here and lost a lot of time, so don't ask me what's my proposition. <laughs> what's yours, Mr. Fekini? <laughs> very good, very good indeed. You're just the man I hoped you were. <laughs> Have a cigar. Wouldn't that be breaking the rules? I make the rules, Mr. Lamb, and I don't like cheap tobacco smoke. Nor do I enjoy being forced to distribute these very costly custom-made Havanas to every, or what is it you call them, bumpkin, who comes into my office. I think you'll enjoy these. Thanks. Light? Thanks. Good. Now that we're a little more at ease, uh, suppose you tell me something about yourself. Why? What do you mean, why? I wish you'd stop asking me what I mean by everything I say, Faculty. I said why, and I meant why. You put private detectives on my trail, you found me, you made me a very substantial down payment on services to be rendered, and now, when I get here, you want me to tell you about myself. That's just plain silly, old man. It's obvious that if you went to all that trouble and expense to get me here, you knew about me already. I'm the one to ask the questions, <laughs> not you. <laughs> better and better. Mr. Lyme, if you were just a little less notorious as a cook, I'd offer you a vice presidency in my bank. I forgive the insult, Mr. Fegarty. Uh, what do you mean, insult? There you go asking me what I mean again. I meant insult. Now, don't you get pompous on me, Lyme. You are a crook, a well-famous one. You don't want to deny that. What I don't want is very simple, Mr. Fegarty. I don't want to be a vice president of your bank. Oh? Oh, 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 I follow you now. <laughs> Don't worry, Lime. Right. I promised you $20,000. That's right. It's equivalent to Hungarian pencils. Oh, wait a minute. And you'll get it without having to serve as an officer of this You bank. promised me $20,000, old man. There weren't any gimmicks in the agreement about the joke money you folks pass off on each other locally. I know. I carry my own microscope for reading the fine type. Very well, very well. $20,000 it is. Uh, don't you want to know what I expect you to do for Mr. it? Mr. Feckety, you keep making me repeat myself. I told you before that I'm a big boy now. If you're giving me 20,000 bucks, I can relax, not worry about asking you silly questions. You're going to get around eventually to telling me what you expect me to do for it. Hmm. Uh, did you ever hear of a bank giving a reward? Yes, but only after a bank robbery. Exactly. Uh. Exactly. Only after a bank has been robbed. I'm reversing the procedure line. I'm giving the reward first. Oh, so that's the little taper, is it? You want me to rob your bank for you? Well, not at all, not at all. A reward is usually given for apprehending the thieves who have robbed the bank. What I want you to do, Harry, I may call you Harry. Certainly, old man, call me Harry if it gives you any fun. Well, Harry, what I want you to do is to apprehend the robbers before the robbery is committed. <laughs> Very clever, don't you think so? Have another cigar. <laughs> my business, I may get in the way of an awful lot of screwy deals, but I can tell you that never in a long career have I been offered in complete seriousness a loopier proposition than Mr. Feckety. Seems the key to the whole affair was Mr. Feckety's junior officer in the bank, a certain Mr. Fodor. Lordis Loss Fodor is the full name, Harry. Mm. He's one of our vice presidents. I see. And I tell you this right now, the man is an unprincipled criminal. Oh? Come here and I'll show him to you. Come this way. You can see him through the glass pan. Oh, yes. There he is. Oh, that one? Second desk to the right. Uh, with all those silly hairs pasted over his bald head. <laughs> That's the man. He doesn't look very dangerous to me. Fodor? Dangerous? He is the brain of a backward bird and the charm of a worm. Now that I look back on it, I can't imagine how I ever persuaded myself to be jealous of Jealous? I don't follow you, old man. If I have a fault, Harry, it is this. I do tend to be jealous. 
Lulu often chides me about it. I have promised to cut the instinct, but there is a part of my case. Lulu, you mean the girl in the flower shop across the way, that Lulu? She is the only Lulu I know, Mr. Lyon. How does it happen that you are acquainted with her? You see this carnation? I see it, yes. Lulu sold it to me, overcharged me, scandalously, as a matter of fact. Poor Lulu is a working girl. She must live. How does it happen you know her? What makes you think I do? You know her name? Oh, one of the other customers called her that while I was still in the shop. As it happens, it was this little fellow you just pointed out to me over there, the vice president uh, photo. Dad, vice president. I hate to keep harping on these commercial matters, faculty old man, but just how does my $20,000 reward come into the picture? Uh, let us retire to my inner office, Harry. I never tell you. Okay, come. old man. Uh, sit down, please, Harry. Have another cigar. My pockets are bulging with cigars now, old man. Let's concentrate on the 20000 Certainly, right? certainly. Oh, Miss Carver, Miss Carver. Yes, Mr. Beckett? Uh, no matter who calls, don't disturb me. Not on any account. I'm having an important conference. Yes, Mr. Beckett. Oh, jealousy, Harry. Jealousy is a terrible yes, thing. Yes, yes, certainly is. Now about this reward. Jealousy uh, is the green-eyed monster who doth mock the meat it feeds on. That's how the poet Shakespeare expresses yeah, the it. The poet Shakespeare said a mouthful. And now... But still, if it had not been for jealousy, I would never have followed this photo into Lulu's shop. And if I hadn't done that, I would never have discovered the digging. Digging? What digging? What would you say, Harry, if I were to tell you that running under the street from Lulu's flower shop to this bank, there is a tunnel? A tunnel? What would you say if I told you that? Well, eh? I'd say, well, 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 what do you know? That's what I'd say. That's what I said when I found out about it. And that's why I say now that I mustn't ever forget to be grateful to jealousy, particularly since I've discovered that there's nothing between Lolo and Voda. Uh, nothing serious. And uh, do you know what I'd say to that? No. A couple of rude words. Yeah, but why? Why? You find him scrabbling away together like a couple of chubby moles, digging away in the general direction of your bank vault, and you say there's nothing serious between them? There isn't, I'm sure of that. I have Lulu's wealth. And besides, what could she possibly see in a fat little identity like Fodder? No, the only one who thinks it's serious is Fodder. That's the whole point. Fodder is a dupe, a mere cat's point in the conspiracy. Oh, yes, and who's the mastermind? I am. Uh-huh. And what does Fodor think about that? He languishes in ignorance. He knows nothing. I do think that he aspires. He dares to aspire to my position in the bank. How does Lulu fit in? I must tell you that Lulu has given me some reason to hope that she will someday make me the happiest man in the world. And how would she do that? By giving up Fodor or sending you a big bouquet of roses? Let's get down to cases, old man. Wedding bells can ring out from Buddha to past and back again, but I won't be there to throw any rice unless I get paid. What is it exactly you want from me? Lessons on how to help Fodor and Lulu rob your bank? Fodor's going to do with the robbing. And besides, it isn't my bank. I'm only a salary officer. And then Fodor gives you the money to give to Lulu. Is Certainly that not. it? Certainly not. That would be silly. And that's just what I was thinking. No, no. Every day, Fodor is supposed to take the paper money from the various cages and place it in the vault. Yeah. This is his responsibility. Yeah. Tonight, however, he will not do this. He will leave the money outside the vault, hidden in a large filing cabinet. Oh, yeah. oh, the entire plan has been carefully worked out, I can assure you. All I can say is this folder of yours is a very cooperative type of cat's for Don't call him this folder of yours. He isn't. He's no folder of mine. Have it your own way, old man. What comes next? You, I suppose. Hmm? You come a half hour later with a dark lantern and a gunny sack. You wrap up the money, join Lulu, who's been waiting for you across the street in the flower shop, and the two of you, hand in hand, move off down the road into the sunrise and also into the very choicest Hungarian hooskar. Hmm? What is a hooskar? A jail or prison, a place of forcible incarceration, a lockup for bad little bank robbers. Not at all, not at all. It is Fodor who goes to prison. Oh, yes, and how do you work that? That is one of the things I want you to arrange. Oh, I see. I'm going to have to earn that 20000 I think we'll start by having it deposited in my name and in somebody else's bank, old man. Why now? 
And why another bank? Well, every bank in Budapest isn't going to be robbed tonight, so I think I'd prefer one of the others. And I'll take it now because I know you wouldn't want me to go to the police with what is, after all, a fairly sordid little Good story. Good issue, but that's blackmail. Oh, watch your language, old man. Blackmail's a nasty word. You know, all I want is protection for my poor little 20,000. I'll give you service for it, too, but I want to be absolutely positive that you're ready to meet your payroll. Very well. You'll have your money, but you will help me. I'm going to need a few more solid facts, old man. Well, it all began with this insane jealousy of mine for fortune. Oh, yeah? I took to following him. He used to go into Lulu's flower shop at night long after it was closed. And one time he left the shutter unfastened and I went in. There were no lights in the shop itself, but I could hear voices from the basement below. I opened the trap door very carefully so as not to be hurt. And what do you think I saw? You saw Lulu, Fodor, and three men all hard at work digging a tunnel. Hmm? Yeah. How did you know? I didn't, I guess. After all, you told me there was a tunnel. But the three men, how did you know about them? Uh, still guessing. It's pretty obvious that Mr. Fodor and Lulu couldn't dig much of a hole without getting some help. Tell me this. It was Lulu who persuaded you to call me in on this deal, wasn't it? How did you know that? Still just guessing, old man, just guessing. Now, let me guess on for a minute and stop me when I'm wrong. When you saw what Lulu and Fodor were doing, you went home and brooded for a while, and a few days afterwards, you confronted her. It was the next day. Okay, it was the next day. And Lulu admitted she was planning to rob the bank, but said she was just using Fodor, and you were the only one she really cared about. And if you joined the party, it's you she'd run off with leaving Mr. Fodor holding the bag. <laughs> An empty bag. How am I doing? Oh, you're a clever man. Sure I am. That's why Lulu had you sent for me. You see, the idea is that Fodor will hide the money outside the vault and leave. Then, according to the arrangement, as he understands it, Lulu will come through the tunnel at night with her helpers and take the money back under the street through the tunnel. Uh, who did she tell Fodor these helpers were? She said one of them is her brother and the other two are cousins. And what did she tell you? That's what she told me. Why? Nothing, nothing, old man. Nothing at all. Just give me one more guess. Hmm? Oh, go ahead. After Fodor leaves the money, what you do is crawl back through the tunnel with a sack of currency clenched in your teeth. But no, that wouldn't make any sense, would it? You'd run into a couple of brothers crawling in the opposite direction. Uh, I, I'm not to have anything to do with the tunnel. Oh. You see, Fodor leaves the money out just before closing time. That way, he's implicated and we have a scapegoat. So there's nothing to stop me from letting myself in with my key at night and walking away with the money. Who could suspect me? It's a perfect crime, Harry. Would you say so? Yes, yes, it's quite a crime if you look at it in one way. Uh, but tell me about the brothers. What are they supposed to think about all this? Oh, they don't know about it. Lulu hasn't told them. But the news will reach them eventually. And what then? They must be implicated somehow, along with Fodor. But I must be protected. And Lulu, that's what you're here for, Harry. Have another cigar. Orson Welles returns in just a moment as the third man. And now, Orson Welles, as the third man, continues with today's story, Too Many Crooks. Naturally, the first thing I did after making my farewells to Mr. Feckety was to go across the street and pay a call on Lulu. Harry, yeah? listen to me carefully. I'm listening, honey. There's a little cafe on the hill above the old city. You know the place? Mm -hmm. There's a gold roost on the roof. Well, what about it? Go there and wait for me. 
You never can tell when Fodor Feckett will be bursting in here. They keep jumping across the street to check up on each other and buying geraniums. <laughs> Go to the cafe and I'll be with you as soon as I can close up what, here. What about the boys below? Well, what do you mean? The construction crew, the Corellis. Oh, um, Feckett, he told you about the Corellis? I would have found out anyway, Lily. Lulu. Okay, what happens to them if you shut up the store? Isn't there a way out? No, but they won't be finished work before I'm back. Besides, what they don't know won't hurt them. Lily, or rather Lulu, it looks to me as though just about everybody around here is due to be hurt by what they don't know. I found the gold rooster and sat down on the terrace of the restaurant to wait for Mr. Feckety's fiancée. Over a glass of tokai, I tried to add up the situation as of then. As far as I could see, the whole setup was like a Picasso painting. No matter how you looked at it, it was cockeyed and upside down. Hello, Harry. Don't worry anything for me. I haven't time. Don't worry, Lily. I'm not here to celebrate. We can have our party after I know who's going to pay the check. I wish you'd call me Lulu. Okay, Lulu. Now, here's all the sense I can make out of this little caper. You came here with a Corelli gang, right? No, they came first. Then they sent for me to work in the flower shop for a front. The tunnel was their idea. Then you sent for me. That was your idea. You're right. My photo thinks he's going to divvy up with the Corellis and marry you on the Mm, proceeds. Something like that. In fact, he thinks something like the same something. The president thinks he's going to put it over the vice president. What about the construction crew? You mean Walter and yes, the others? Yes, the, the original burglars. What are they going to get out of this? According to Feckety, it's going to be the old double cross, but if I know you, Feckety's in for the same gentle treatment. Harry, why should anybody get anything out of this except... Okay, Harry, okay. Book a couple of spaces for us on the first milk train out of Budapest, but be sure to get reservations on the bulletproof car. I wish you'd call me Lulu. A lot of trusting Hungarian depositors line up at the bank, leave their hard-earned pengos at the impressive-looking gilt cages for what they fondly believe is safekeeping, and hurry home to have their evening plate of goulash. Closing time comes and goes. Feckety doesn't leave. He just pretends to, and stays skulking in his office. Meanwhile, Fodor takes the big packages of pengos, which, as you know, is Hungarian for money, dutifully to the door of the vault. He slams the vault loudly, this being for the benefit of the janitor, who is deaf anyway and doesn't hear, and quickly stows the loot in the empty filing cabinet which he has thoughtfully left nearby for just this purpose. He then goes home and passes a very restless night. The moon rises over the city and winks at its own reflection in the Danube. A lot of good Hungarians are in their beds. The others are all in a nightclub called the Arizona, dancing the Shardash. They do not come into this story, so we'll leave them dancing. Down onto the street, the Corellis, those adept bank robbers, continue to dig. They are putting the finishing touches on their tunnel, and we will not listen in on them because their conversation is very vulgar indeed. In his luxurious office, Mr. Feckety sits biting his nails and dreaming of a long West Indian cruise with Lulu in an adjoining deck chair. As the gang in the tunnel understand it, when the clock strikes 12, they are to open the secret trap door which they have previously prepared inside the bank, a section of tiling near the vault, Go to the filing cabinet and take out the money which Porter has left there, thus eliminating the noise and inconvenience of breaking into the vault, and, first closing the loose tile after themselves, scuttle back with the loot under the street into the flower shop, out into the night and as far away from Hungary as possible. As I say, 
that's the way the gang in the tunnel understand it. This is also the arrangement as Mr. Fodor understands it, with a trifling difference that he expects Lulu to stop by for him with his share of the profits. Like Mr. Feckety, he is biting his nails and dreaming of tropical cruises. And what of Lulu? Ah, what of Lulu indeed? It is Lulu's little plan to foozle everybody, Corelli, Fodor, and Feckety. She's led them all on to just this point. It is the point of departure. Lulu's departure. Lulu and all those neatly wrapped packages of pingos. The trouble is, it's all just a little bit too much for one little girl to handle alone, so Harry Lyme's been sent for. Harry is supposed to assist at the general foozling of one and all, and then, in due time, of course, he's to be foozled as well. Lulu will send Harry off to mail a postcard, and when he gets back, Lulu will have continued her travels alone, with nothing to keep her company but the loot. That, as I say, is the way Lulu understands it. The clock, high in the steeple of San Stefano, strikes twelve. This is the signal. Mr. Corelli, that celebrated expert with his two able assistants, starts toward the bank. The tunnel was not built for comfort, and the going on hands and feet is a trifle rough. There's a bit of genteel cursing, but hearts are high. At the sound of the clock, Mr. Feckety removes the bound bundles of money from their place of safety and checks once again the bolts and fastenings which keep the loose tile in its place. In the darkness, Mr. Feckety smiles. He is satisfied that, contrary to the Corelli's expectations, the bank end of the tunnel is firmly and irrevocably closed. Still smiling, he starts toting the money toward the side door for which he, Mr. Feckety, is the perfectly legal possessor of a key. On the outside, Lulu, with a high-speed car, is supposed to be waiting for him. Unfortunately, however, a moment earlier, Harry Lyme, on the flower shop end of the tunnel, has persuaded Lulu to go down for a moment and tell the boys not to try lifting that trick tile for at least a half hour. Lulu hates herself now for not having analyzed the merits of this suggestion. She has plenty of time now to think this over because foxy old Harry in the flower shop has bolted down the trap door. The clock has stopped striking, of course, and Mr. Feckety pops out of his bank looking for all the world like a jolly Christmas shopper with his arms loaded with bundles. There is a high-speed car waiting for Mr. Feckety, all right, but it is full of strange gentlemen, and they are all dressed in uniforms. Put up your hands, Feckety. Uh, Put up your hands. You're under arrest. But, but there's some mistake. Oh, not at all, old man. No mistake at all. You see, gentlemen, just as you were told, there he is. And there's the money. Come along oh. now, Feckety. We are taking you in. You, Harry. A police informer. Not a bit of it, old man. I wouldn't dream of telling on you. No, the cops got the tip off from an anonymous letter. And you know how you spell anonymous? L-U-L-U. Lulu. She did it. Lulu. Lulu. That wouldn't be Lulu Hartz, would it? Uh, alias Lily the Twister. Yes, officer, I believe so. There's a reward offered for her capture, isn't there? Uh, I should say there and is. What about the Corelli gang? They've got the biggest price on their heads in Central Europe. Oh, that's lovely. It's all beginning to add up when you throw in the generous reward Mr. Feckety posted in the name of his bank this afternoon. Uh, but you're not going to collect that, are Why you? Why not, old man? After all, you put up the money for me to collect before the bank was robbed, didn't you? You also wanted me to thwart the Corellis, and if you yourself are foolish enough to go breaking the law, you'll just have to tell it to the judge. I'll tell him plenty. I'll tell him about you. Go ahead. I haven't broken any laws, remember, and you'll only help me collect my various rewards. As a matter of fact, Lyme, just what is your connection with this affair? What have you done? Officer, all I did was turn a bolt on a trap door. Nothing at all, really, just a twist to the wrist. And now, if you've got some spare handcuffs ready, I think we'd better open it up again. The folks down below may be getting a little fretful, and I think they'll appreciate a change of scene. If you'll come with me, officer, I'll show you the place. Really, Mr. Lyme, I can't tell you how grateful... Please, please, old man, don't mention it. Pleasure, I assure you. Won't you have a cigar? 
Time returns in just a moment. substituting those fat packages of pengos for the same weight of old newspapers. But the rate of exchange wasn't so good on a pengo just then, so I resisted the temptation. After all, as Mother always said, too many crooks spoil the goulash. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Nightbeat, followed by Sherlock Holmes. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.